Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. This is the week in which it feels like the coronavirus went from a whisper to a scream. Suddenly it hit home. Trips got canceled. People worked from home. Communities declared states of emergency. Drugstores ran out of masks and sanitizer. Worldwide cases approached 100,000. And of course, American people died, 14 and counting. We began to grapple with the tangible details of prospects that seemed the stuff of science fiction, like quarantines, which already affect thousands of New Yorkers, and school closures, which now affect all of Italy and Iran. Uncertainty was and is rife, with no apparent way of quantifying the likely intensity and duration of the virus for which there'll be no available vaccine for at least a year. And the Trump administration's propensity to lie and spin, and the president's own ignorance in his briefing of the American people, came to appear pernicious and dangerous. The virus presents a series of vexing and life and death issues of national security and health law. And to explore several of the most pressing among them, I'm joined by a superb panel of experts. Starting with Frank Figliuzzi, very well known to listeners of Talking Feds. Frank is the national security contributor for NBC and MSNBC News, where he's been a mainstay and a clear moral and factual voice, I would say, in the last three years. Frank's the former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, and he was previously the special agent in charge of the Cleveland division. Frank, welcome, as always, to Talking Feds. Thanks, Harry. Never a dull moment. (laughs) (laughs) Juliet Kayyem, national security analyst for CNN and the Belfer Lecturer in International Security at the Kennedy School of Government. Juliet has had extensive experience in national security issues in state and federal government, starting at the Federal Department of Justice in 1995, where we initially met. Notably, she was the Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. She was also Massachusetts' first Undersecretary for Homeland Security. Welcome, Juliet. Thanks for having me. And finally, Wendy Mariner, the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law at Boston University School of Public Health. She is a professor of law, professor of medicine, and director of the JDMPH dual degree program at Boston University School of Public Health and one of the nation's leading scholars of public health law. Thank you very much for joining us, Wendy. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with the feds. All right. There's so many different aspects to this crisis, and the news is at a full gallop and constantly being revised. Let's start by trying to isolate some different aspects of the problem. You know, how are you viewing this through the lens of national security? It's clear this is a public health issue, and yet it's also clear, I think, as you have explained in the last several days, that it very much implicates national security. What are the most serious risks that are keeping you up at night as the virus effects grow broader? 
here's how people have to understand this is unfolding for every crisis, locally executed, state managed, federally supported. So this is a local story, despite the fact that we all can't look past Trump because he says wrong things and stupid things and everything like that. So from the national security and homeland security perspective, I'm looking at this in two ways. So one is I do, as predicted, right, this was a, this was a you know high stress week. I'm predicting for everyone that starting Monday, you're going to start to see social disruptions en masse. So one of the things that I think about in terms of this is you know, the extent to which these social disruptions have an impact, which will be, which will be large, school closings, things like that, um, will have an impact on uh, much of our strength, so to speak, the strength that we portray to the outside world, right? So, you know, our economy in particular, but just also our readiness. I think if there's anything that makes me, lots of things make me mad about our inability to have sort of planned for this. We had a couple weeks. We, I call, I've been calling it squander time. We saw this hurricane coming and then we don't have the kids to test it. So uh, kind of give a tangible example of this. So our readiness for the whole thing, which, you know, we have yeah. known about for a few months, give a national security uh, issue that plays out in terms of readiness. I think it's an issue of, we have a plan and that plan is a pandemic plan, right? A pandemic readiness plan for Homeland Security. That plan assumes that things can't be contained, which we certainly should have assumed um, vis-a-vis China, no matter what they did, this was going to come here. That six to eight weeks that we had in January and February should have been getting us ready, in particular with the testing kits and then respirators. We think those are going to be the two major things that are needed. Why do you want testing kits? Because we don't know, you know, we we need a denominator. We need to know how many people are infected because then we're going to know what the fatality rate is and we're going to know what we what we need to do. We lost that time. So in terms of, you know, perception of our readiness for a homeland security threat, which is where we are right now, that perception is clear that we weren't ready. Unpack a little more what you mean by we need a denominator. Okay, so this is this has been my refrain. Okay, so from the planning <laughs> perspective, I make it clear, I'm not a doctor, I'm a consumer of intelligence, right? So this is as a Homeland Security person, we consume intelligence, right? So the, you know, the CIA tells us this, the FBI tells us that, because we're planners and our general line is, you cannot manage if you do not measure. That is exactly, that's the motto we live by, or you, you know, if you don't measure, you can't manage. We have no idea of what is going on here. The denominator issue has to do with what is the percentage of your population? One person dies. If my pool is 10, right, that is 10% of the people are going to die. And that's a really scary from a management perspective. If you told me that the fatality rate was 10% of all those infected, I would tell you right now, close every school, everyone stay inside for two weeks. Literally, I would just say that 10% is, you know, out of control, right? If you tell me that my pool, my denominator is 100, then I've got 1%. That's not good because my regular flu season is significantly less than that, but that's that's a that's a different management in terms of you know when you scale when you activate social distancing plans and you're starting to see that now. All right, so the denominator here you're actually thinking in terms of fatalities because many people can get sick and not yes. die and many people can get infected and not be sick. So yes. what you're actually wanting to know is what percent of the people who are exposed to the virus will die? That would be the best fraction you could have as a national security consumer? 
Yeah, it's extreme. I mean, death is extreme. Lots of people are going to get very sick, but it at least gives me a sense of, of, you know, in the worst case scenario, what am I looking at? And because we were so late or we are so late on the testing protocols, well-documented story of what happened um, in terms of the CDC's, you know, sort of bad decision-making regarding this, we now don't have a basic number to manage around. So one of the reasons why you see, I believe, why you see panic is because panic fills the failure to plan. That's also in the past. So, I mean, part of what people like me, you know, you can't just, you know, lots of people on Twitter focus on all the bad things that have happened. What we also have to anticipate is may, I think we have not gotten our heads around the major social disruptions to our economy, to our, uh, you know, social vibrancy, to our business, to our economy. And that is, all of those are about America's strength. It may be short term, as we're seeing with China, but nonetheless, it is going to have security implications. The second thing, just quickly, and then I want to hear others, is um, there is a disinformation campaign going on. This is very similar to the stuff Frank right. has focused on the last couple of years. Um, disinformation in health security, it is not unlike how the Russians have sort of taken over the anti-vax movement. And those divisions or the, that, that disinformation will play out in racial ways. So is this an Asian? Should, do we blame China or Asians? Are we more nervous about them? Or, you know, um, and also will play out in economic and, and other ways um, that we're already starting to see. China had this problem. We have this problem. You know, remember just a couple weeks ago, we had se- a senator suggest this was bioterrorism. That is, that is just wrong. But that's the kind of stuff that makes people very, very agitated and something that our enemies will take advantage of. Yeah, I, look, let me start with uh, what Juliet kind of ended with, which was this notion of disinformation and propaganda. Just yesterday, March 5th, the Washington Post reported on State Department openly commenting that Russia has been responsible for a vast amount of disinformation and propaganda already with regard to coronavirus. So we've heard everything from them on it's man-made, it's a deliberate uh, strategy, it's a hoax, all kinds of things. And, and I think we need to be aware of that generally across the spectrum of social media, that it's not just Russia. We're going to see all kinds of bizarre things happening, and it's already happening. My experience in the FBI with training for, drilling for, preparing for pandemics um, involved something you know much closer to home and, and very, very practical, which is the notion that entire police departments could fall ill with this fire rescue, troop issues and troop readiness and the ability to to fight. You know, we keep hearing people on certain from certain sectors trying to minimize the the virus and its impact on people. And they may be absolutely right. And as Juliet and I'm sure Wendy will talk about, we, we don't quite understand where we, what we've got because of we're not doing the proper amount of testing. But let's assume for the sake of argument, as Rush Limbaugh said, um, and I, I thought I'd never quote Rush Limbaugh, but <laughs> he, since he's a medal of freedom winner, I, I should quote him, you know, that this is nothing more than the common cold. All right. I, I don't agree with that, but let's assume that for the sake of argument. Well, and it's certainly a bad cold if you're healthy. Assume your entire local police force comes down all at once with a bad cold or your paramedic rescue department or worse yet, an entire naval ships, submarines or bases, because we've seen this now surface in places like U.S. troops in South Korea, for example. 
you start getting into security issues. Um, some of them serious when you're talking about the military and the inability to staff, you know, police shifts and and things like that. So, and, and you know, the FBI drills on this and prepares for this. But I have to tell you, most of my drilling and preparing was in was where we had medical distribution sites set up around our various field office regions where we would come in, we would ensure the security of those distribution sites. We would we would ensure that, for example, um, first responders, healthcare workers are getting whatever medicine there is. There's no such vaccine or medicine to distribute. You know, we would deal with things like you know, anthrax or, or smallpox or what, what, you know, something that, that is very, very deadly, but also something you could, you might be able to do something about. The problem here is we, we don't have that vaccine yet. So even the, the notion of mass distribution of vaccines or meds, not really something that we can talk about here. And we won't for a year. Yeah, that strikes me as huge. I've, I've participated in these kinds of preparations as, you know, uh, exercises in which we posit, say, a terrorist who's infected with smallpox, uh, and everybody died, by the way. What seems so vexing here, it's not just the denominator of fatalities or the or the possibility that a whole department actually falls sick, but the possibility that not knowing will cause us into vast kinds of social displacements, as you might say. What would a good preparedness plan even look like when you don't know how widespread the um, not just the contagion will be, but the people who have been exposed to people who who have been exposed and, and you don't know what to do with that whole cadre? Well, there is some irony in the fact that we've been uh, working on preparedness plans for almost two decades and still seem to be caught unawares when another infectious virus uh, hits us. So an investment, um, the kind of preparedness that we need, I believe, is uh, investments in the infrastructure in the country that enable people to withstand this kind of disease, whether by making sure that they are well-fed and healthy, uh, have access to appropriate health care, uh, can afford to stay home uh, when there is uh, a disease that appears for which there is no vaccine or, or treatment. It's the lack of possible vaccine or treatment that is that makes these things troubling. But also in this case, the fact that the uh, the virus can be transmitted perhaps before anyone shows any symptoms, and that's a bit unusual and the kind of thing we've been fearing for for quite some time. And that's why, as um, as Juliet mentioned knowing the denominator is really, really important. We don't know how many people who have been exposed in one way or another to the virus actually got infected. And of those who got infected, it's not clear that we know how many become actually symptomatic and sick. And then we do know people who have died, but we don't, again, know what, what proportion that is of the total number infected or even exposed without being infected. As a result, we're, we're pushed to what would be other, you know, the most kinds of extreme caution, measures of, of caution, because, you know, it might be that there's a, I, I know someone who just came back from a conference where there were thousands of people, apparently one or two were exposed, and it's not clear whether everybody in that conference now has to be quarantined, and it's also not clear 
who is capable of making that determination? That's an important point. Uh, If we are in a situation where we have no obvious vaccine therapeutic response and we have to take the kind of action that really is, is centuries old, the social distancing, keeping people apart from each other. We need uh, the infrastructure to let that happen. And we don't really have it. We haven't built it up. Uh, we haven't enabled people to stay home when they could stay home voluntarily in order to see if maybe they got sick. And if they do, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to infect others. Uh, we don't have sick leave for most people in the country, maybe 10 states in the District of Columbia have laws governing and requiring paid sick leave. Even if you have sick leave, it may not cover you if you're not actually sick, but you're staying home to be a good citizen and protect others to wait and see if you're getting sick. And if you're taking steps like closing schools, for example, which can be a wise thing to do since schools and children can certainly infect each other if someone's infected. If we ask children to stay home from schools, where, where do they, what do they do? Can the parents stay home? Right. Uh, can the parents not afford to work? Do the parents have childcare? If the parents can't afford to stay home from work, that defeats the whole purpose. Uh, this is freelancers, Uber drivers, gig workers. They don't have sick leave. They don't have employment. Right? If they don't work, they don't get paid. If they don't get paid, they may not be able to pay the rent. It really puts an enormous amount of pressure on people to go to work when, because they have to, even if they don't want to and they would prefer to stay home, be a good citizen, sacrifice for the benefit of the community. We need systems in place that will enable us to do that. And that's what's been left out of the equation for years, even though public health professionals have made the argument in favor of it, as I have sort of yelling into the wind. Right. Um, Juliet, you yeah. mentioned this this real shorthand of, you know, local problems, state management, federally yeah. funded or whatever. Can you can you play that out a little bit with yeah. an eye toward whether there could be on the ground conflicts in concrete decisions like whether to close schools and the like? We've done the plan. We've done the training. We're here now. I mean, this is, and this is, I should probably go back and just describe for people who are in crisis management, why, you know, there's a lot to blame Trump for, although I wish people would stop looking at him and think we'd all be better off if for the next couple of weeks, we just, just sort of ignore him. him. Yeah. Right. Um, just because nothing good comes from that. And just to really look at our local efforts. So there's things that the Trump administration did poorly. And what, what I described as that squander time, you know, even before that dismantling, you know, the pandemic planning office at the NSC, having the Department of Homeland Security look, you know, only as a border agency, not as one that was ready for uh, the kind of disruption we're about to um, uh, have. But putting that aside, pandemics are hard. And the reason why is because no matter how much planning you do, the act of what we could, the next step is activation. The activation moment is very hard. So you give me a bombing, right? You give me a Boston bombing, you give me a hurricane. As a planner, I know when to move, right? I know exactly right. when to move. This is going to hit different communities in different ways. Um, it's going to hit, obviously, we're seeing the West Coast now, um, New York. You know, is it, so the activation is going to be different, and that's going to be a localized decision. So you don't look to the feds for that. The feds are, are there. The feds 
have actually done really good right now in the sense that we pass a lot of money. We just, we being the locals, just need money. Yeah, like eight billion or something. And that goes for what? Whatever the states want to use yeah, it on, it's or there's probably go to di- no diagnostics, uh, planning, all sorts of stuff. So I th- I'm, yeah. you know, it's good that we're going to get the money down there. But this is now going to be local decisions, and like any decision, so just take pandemic out of it. Just assume that there had been an earthquake. What is your problem from a public safety, national security perspective? Is exactly what Frank said. Does your system? The reason why it's a crisis is you know, do your normal standard operating procedures fail? And that would mean in terms of what I'm thinking about, it's really, it's going to be, do I have workforce capacity to keep um, the water running, the electricity running? And I want everyone who's listening to know I'm at worst case scenario. I do not think critical infrastructure is going to go down because of a manpower or woman power issue. So that's just the thing I, I think about, right? In terms of you know, what kind of additional resources National Guard and otherwise would we want? I think people, when we talk about quarantine and stuff, we're not there yet. I don't, you know, we're not China. You know, would you shoot to kill to keep someone in? No, this is not, you know, we're not, at, we're not at the movie yet. And I don't think that that's not what worries me. It's the atmosphere around our focus on this. People will die from this virus. More people, a lot of people will also die because they had something else and our healthcare system is completely stressed, right? So right. that's the that's the challenge. I mean, a good point that I hadn't realized till I read, you know, there were we've had twenty two or whatever deaths in the US. So uh this this season, which is a pretty bad influenza season, we've had four thousand. And so it, it points up again that the the big problem here is the uncertainty and and whether it could get, you know, bigger and bigger and how you how you have to deal with the information vacuum. So, I mean, it it seems to me that probably, you know, good and credible information is the coin of the realm. So fine, leaving the president out of this, where should we look? You suggested, Juliet, but maybe um, Wendy and Frank, you agree that sort of work has been done on this. You just have to dust it off and and look in the manual, you know, in the index, page 46, police department, et cetera. I mean, is the is the info out there or in a sense, are we having to make it up as we go along? Juliet made the correct point that an emergency is when our normal systems fail or get overwhelmed. And that and that's true. The problem is our normal systems aren't enough as they are, uh, so they can't weather some many some smaller stresses. If we need to make we need to invest in the kind of healthcare system, health coverage, um, sick leave, backup pay that enable people to survive even smaller uh, kinds of outbreaks or illnesses. If you don't have that, your population won't be resilient enough to resist the predictable periodic kinds of of viruses and epidemics that can happen. If you have that kind of infrastructure, it won't be as easily overwhelmed. And that is something that is, is missing in a lot of the planning. A lot of the preparedness planning that I have seen really does focus on getting our act together at the last minute to, um, you know, respond in a flash to an explosion, a disaster, sometimes a pandemic, gearing up for last minute results. We're not preventing anything. We're always responding. 
And if there's a, there's a way that we would be able to better prevent the spread if we had the infrastructure that people need. Just to pull on on that thread a little more that Wendy raised, it, you know, the, the issue of what we're prepared for, what we drill for, makes certain assumptions that, you know, we'll, we'll have a body of knowledge of how many people are sick, where they are, who they are, um, and that people will be able to get care. And this this issue of of, of enhancing our healthcare system to deal with this is really critical. We, we've seen some some good news in that regard, and and then we haven't seen some things happen that should probably happen. And and one of those is this whole issue of people who feel like I I can't go to the doctor. I'm really sick. I might have this, but I can't afford it. I can't afford it. And then and so we we've seen um, the White House take some positive steps in that regard, which we've seen some of the Democratic uh, candidates point out that, hey, that sounds a lot like my health care plan, what the White House is suggesting for this for this virus. But the other part of this is many, many people who will say, you know what, I, I can't afford to be off work. I can't pay my rent if I don't make the shifts this week. Exactly. And so th- there needs to be a next step here. We we can't the people who are into preparedness and the government agencies at any level can't do what they what they want to do and drill to do if people aren't playing by certain parameters like hey mm-hmm. you're going to get healthcare if you're sick right. hey you're going to not go to work you're, well people are like no, screw that i i i have to go to work or i'm going to get yeah. fired and so we need we need the white house to say time out we're going to encourage the following things from employers. We're going to do certain things that we can do with the federal workforce, a huge, massive workforce, you know, and say, don't worry right now about not making that that rent payment or, you know, being off work. A crisis hits a community or a nation as it is, not as you want it to be. This is right. the hardest thing right now. And so all of the gaps we have in our social fabric, employee rights, sick leave, health care, surge capacity are going to not get uh, solved by this, but exacerbated. And so, so as Frank said, so some of this responsibility is going to fall on employers and others, like what Trader Joe's did. They, they have now, I think they, they are now doing paid sick leave or something to, to ameliorate some of the stresses on employees. So some of this is going to have to be done on an individual basis because of the failures of the, because of failures in our federal system. The other is on my high horse, or not even high horse at this stage is, if you want to be a hero, people listening to a fancy podcast, the reason why we need people to anticipate, to stay home, to prepare, to not be a burden on our public safety, public health entities is because there are people in a lot worse shape than us. So if we're not doing it, right, we're just adding to the pool of potential victims, it's too strong a word, but of potential stresses on the system. So we do have a way of individually, each of us just, you know, thinking through, I'm a big planner, you know, thinking through these social disruptions, taking care of yourself, you know, this, even though the flu vaccine and various vaccines don't apply to coronavirus a more resilient community vis-a-vis health can handle, you know, a disruption like this much better, right? So you want to basically, you know, raise the floor. And so um, so there, there are things that are going to get exacerbated that are going to make us horrified as a nation. And they, I've been through this a lot. They don't get, I, unfortunately, they don't get solved. They, you know, racism, poverty, 
lack of health care get exacerbated. So what can we do to do that? We can, you know, compensate for that is go to Chinatown, go have dinner, you know, uh, uh, make sure that you're healthy, make sure that you, you know, talk to your parents. We always talk about kids and school closings. I'm looking at the numbers and Wendy probably is like, I need, I talk to my parents. They are not, I don't want them to travel right now. I don't want them to do certain things because they're just in the higher risk pool. So there's the good news, the bad news, and then maybe the more empowering one. Wow. So, but that is, that is pretty um, uh, sobering or extreme. I mean, Wendy, are you kind of doling out similar counsel that, you know, people as a should, should stay home and, and, and generally, in fact, be, I guess you could say conservative in that, in that sense. So, so as to not even risk adding to the stresses of the of the system. Uh, well, it depends entirely on where you are. It might be different in Seattle than it is in Boston. I don't think we have a, this a serious week. issue. Yeah. Yes, and, and and you pay attention, but the deaths that have occurred have tip, have been mostly in the frail elderly who had their right. own underlying conditions. Now, I don't know whether that's good news or bad news. I think it's bad news that they had to suffer this. Um, it some my epidemiologists and statisticians might consider it. Good news, thinking that perhaps if you're younger and healthier, uh, this might not be as bad. I, but the I, bigger stresses on the system are not the deaths, really, right? They're the, correct. the quarantine. Yes. Yeah, so go ahead. That, yeah, that's exactly right. The stresses on the system are to our healthcare system. I think about uh, your primary care providers, your emergency departments. They're already faced with an influx of patients who have colds and worry that it's something worse, who have the flu and worry that it's something worse. And now they are concerned about uh, coronavirus. What do they do? If they don't have enough tests, as many physicians are uh, saying, there's a right limiting step as to what how they can respond. And if they have to get permission from the health department laboratory before they can even take a test and submit it, uh, what do they do with the patients and how look at the backlog and do they put on protective gear, donning and doffing what, uh, you know, this it, it, and a whole suit for every patient they see. It slows things down. It makes things harder and you don't get test results for a day or two anyway. Then you could say, well, what do you, what do you tell the patient? You tell the patient to uh, wait for test results, go home and don't go out just in case, right? right? Even though we don't know that you're infected and you may not be. So it puts an enormous stress on on the system that uh, that one could perhaps compensate for if you had the funding to gear up more rapidly than we did. I mean, the kinds of things you're identifying to ameliorate seem like pretty tall orders, you know, basic issues of, of you know, income in, uh, inequality and the like. Absolutely. And what worries me is that shortly after any kind of epidemic like this subsides, and uh, we hope that this will subside, people forget. And then the concern is on, well, it costs too much money to provide sick leave or to provide income replacement for people who aren't employees and don't get paid if they don't work. It costs too much money to provide extra childcare. Well, it costs money <laughs> for people, you know, that businesses that are disrupted, businesses that lose their, their customers, people who can't afford to come and pay. And think I was going to add one thing to, for the consideration for the Homeland Security side. If we have immigrants who are afraid to come to the, uh, to the hospital, 
for fear of being identified as someone who has perhaps an undocumented family member. We're going to leave them in the community, not knowing whether they are infected or not. So there are all kinds of costs that the comp- that the country will incur that don't get counted. Oh, the only things that get counted are, say, larger payments. And I think that's a, that's a false comparison. Got it. And, and in terms of the information gap, I mean, we're, we're told continually, you, you know, what you need is the best information out there. Is the basic problem that it's there, but it's, uh, you know, obscured by different voices, the kind of thing that Frank identified at the outset? Or is the problem that, you know, it, it literally doesn't exist yet, the sort of information that people need to make the best decisions they can? Uh, Harry, I, I think um, these two questions that you've asked go hand in hand. So there's not enough information to put out yet. Let's talk about that, you know, the, in, in terms of the testing and we're not doing surveillance testing or random testing. We don't have test kits. So, uh, you know, we have to scratch our heads with the history of this particular administration and say, what's going on with that? Is Do they view this as bad news? Are we not seeing a rush to gather all the data we could possibly gather because they're afraid of the data? This feeds into itself. And, you know, and then there's this whole issue of potential suppression of medical professionals or not putting out bad news when, when actually the irony here is that more data collection could actually help things, help the economy, help the administration appear to be transparent. Because, for example, let's say we were doing widespread testing, surveillance testing, and we found out, you know what? There's tens of thousands of people in the United States who have this, and they're doing pretty well. The death rate is much lower than we thought. Right. Th- that could help things. But we're, we're not – that's not where we are right now. And what – where I see this coming from through my through my kind of intelligence community lens is, and what I've been talking about for a couple of years now, is Trump's continual bashing of the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, our institutions generally, and career professionals generally. And the press generally. And, and the press, very specifically, is now kind of coming home to roost. Because when he needs right. them the most, when he needs career professionals and institutions the most – He's now create, created this wall b- between them and him, and he doesn't seem to want to take that wall down. Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, recommendations for the budget has um, each year, the budget submitted by the White House has cut funding for the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for uh, Disease Control and Prevention. Congress has always restored most of that, but it does suggest what the priorities are that are being publicly disseminated by the White House. Yeah, I mean, this is the ultimate casualty of the of the war on you know truth, science, uh, and the like. I, I wanted to double back for one second to the 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 possible. I'm now I'm we're in the movie again, but uh, in the movie, where does the rubber hit the road in terms of possible conflicts at the decision maker government level? You know, what need we fear in terms of poor coordination? among state and federal and local authorities and, you know, who's generally in charge? What, what potential for chaos lies there? Well, we saw one example when the, when the federal government wanted to house some of the people they brought back from overseas in a facility in Alabama, and Alabama resisted, saying, uh, you know, 
not in my state. And the court uh, confirmed, of course, that the federal government has no jurisdiction to force a state to take action. It can bribe the states by saying, then that's what a lot of the of the preparedness is, right? Otherwise known as grants and, and assistance to enable the states to carry out things. So what I find fascinating about uh, this whole area of preparedness is often that people are looking for laws to solve the problem when what we need is money and resources. And those laws are easy to pass. There's no jurisdictional debate that one can raise money and spend it for the public good. There can be other kinds of debates about laws that are more coercive and the like. But what we need is is resources. We have them. We just haven't committed them. Yeah, I think it's a huge point. And, and the, the law point, you know, it, you, you read different times when there's been quarantines, but we were a different society or right? yeah. we're a different society from China. I would just think somebody would be in court right away challenging. We're just such a more litigious society. And of course, while they're doing that, you know, what's happening on the ground because things are sort of frozen. Hey, I'd like to ask uh, a question of Wendy and Juliet, if if they know the answer, and it has to do with resources and capacity for quarant- large quarantine. Um, and as we speak, there's yet another cruise ship. Now it's off the coast of California. It's another princess-based uh, cruise line. And the White House has announced that we simply don't have the capacity to take those people in um, and quarantine them. Is how how accurate do you think that is? So the the ship's going to remain, um, you know, off the coast of California for who, who knows how long. Do, do, is there planning for large scale quarantine? Do we is that you think that's accurate information? No, no, it would not. I mean, both on the I'm, I'm going to go on the homeland security side. If you are at that stage. Um, so much has gone wrong. You know, the society would have been so disrupted. You can't even talk about a government that's actually functioning if you're at that stage. We're, you know, enforcing social distancing, having, let me put it a different way. It's here. So what are you quarantining? Right. I mean, in other words, if you just get your head around it's here, then the, then you're just going to, then basically you're just saying, let's quarantine the United States. Well, basically we'll probably get to that stage at some stage domestic travel. I'm not talking for long periods of time, but at some stage, domestic travel will also be impacted. But I guess, so help me out with that. So we've got this ship, uh, many American citizens on board. The people are are sick. There's people on there who are sick. Or, and then, or change it to a large commercial airliner and we determine, holy cow, um, all these people are coming in with this and we need, we, what is our capacity for, to coin? And I, I get you that we don't want to go there and we shouldn't need to go there, but but right now you got three thousand people on a cruise ship. We, do we not have the ability to figure that out? The ability to figure it out, yes. The ability to quarantine everybody, no. Uh, okay. We certainly don't have that at federal so-called quarantine stations, which are really mostly a couple of people interviewing those who get off a plane and maybe a, a room with a couple of beds. But of course, you could uh, take the people who are on the ship or on the plane and send them, you know, carefully protected to wherever their home is and have them stay there or have a stay. We're not locking people up in a big quarantine facility. I don't think we even have them anymore. It's not cheap. And it, and if you are locking up people who are simply in the same 
you know, geographic area with each other, like on a ship, you don't know whether they've been exposed or not. You don't know whether they're infected or not. You don't know until yeah. they're sick and you might just increase the likelihood of transmission. It, it you know, create another big Petri dish. Which is what they discovered, so which is what they discovered with the cruises. I mean, I just, I just was looking at the data, you know, you started off with two sick and then you had 400, but as a planning perspective, this is, you know, pandemics or potential pandemics are the hardest because it, it, what in what instinctively seems like the right thing to do, you know, uh, shut down the airlines, keep everyone home, quarantine, you know, all that stuff. They're actually much more debatable. Like, you know, if you shut down society, if you get to DEFCON 5 too soon, you know, we close down now prematurely, then you, you know, two weeks from now, we may have to do it again. Right. It's a really hard thing. I mean, this is that trigger from the national security, you know, it's like Iran bombs a U.S. facility in Iraq. Wait, we know what that is, right? You know, so that's like that's like my, my trigger moment. This is the hardest thing. And so when people say to me, "Why didn't they? Should I? Whatever." It's the it's the hardest thing for me right now, both as a expert, but obviously as a mother whose peer group is a lot of worried women who you know, are worried about their kids, worried about their parents, you know, there is no right answer. This, this is the problem. But sometimes the obvious answer is actually not the right answer either. Right. Uh, well, your point about triggers is a good one because this kind of thing is more of a slow yeah, burn. That's exactly right. And nobody knows quite what to do. And the temptation often, especially for politicians, is to do something, even if it's wrong, because it looks like they're actually taking action to protect you, whereas it may indeed be counterproductive. And the easiest and cheapest thing to do is to, uh, actually, it's not that cheap, but they think it is, uh, is to lock people up or stop them from doing things. Whereas what most people want are, they want the drugs, they want to be taken care of, they want to go to the doctor, they want a vaccine, they'll line up for this stuff. Uh, it's not as though people are trying to infect other people, they want to get better. They don't want to hurt other people. They want to get medical care. So what we need is to give them that ability. Okay. Sticking with this, let me just ask, I, you know, we don't know, we don't know how to assess probability, but what would be a fairly bad, people are, are you know, I think their minds go to the worst uh, scenarios, you know, Spanish flu, black plague. What would be uh, a sort of you know, 80% or some outcome that, that we might be looking at. Any mm -hmm. sense of, of how ugly it could get with leaving aside the most improbable? Hmm. I mean, it has impacted a juggernaut of a country, China, and China is starting to rebound. So, so this is the good news, right? right? They took very extreme measures. I always, I never want to miss an opportunity to, to thank the people of Wuhan for suffering through those extreme measures, but, you know, it did buy us time and preparation and data. That data may be conclusive or not conclusive, but it does give us a sense that we're in for about a four to eight week grim moment. Um, but they're back, they're starting to get back up and running with a death rate, if you want to believe their numbers, um, you have a slightly over, you know, 2% of those infected. So, so I, so that's, I think it's important to say that, that we're not living in never, never land or like, you know, the worst movies that we have right. data and we, we, we can challenge the data. We can question the data, but the Chinese went first. And so I just, that, so, so we know what the social disruptions are going to be. They are going to be the school closings, the economic factors, the work from home. They are, we know what's about to unfold. And so 
as individuals, let's not be shocked, scared or whatever. We could, we have the capacity to get through this because we know that there's an end to this, right? This is not the movie, at least not yet. I think for me, I'll answer this kind of on a on a general scale and then on a more specific scale. The bad scenario it, it may be unfolding now, which is the on the information warfare front. By that, I mean the administration might decide that they really are not going to be forthcoming with information that could save a lot of people from getting sick because it just looks bad for the and it's going to hurt the economy. So, and I, as we're on. Right now, Larry Kudlow, economic advisor to the president, has made a statement on CNBC that's being uh, paraphrased as everybody should just stay at work. Just go to work. Stay at work. I don't care. Well, that might be great for the economy, but it actually could be awful for the economy and it could get even more people sick. So that bad scenario where we are seeing suppression of information that could really keep people healthy is really bad. Now, on a very specific national security type picture, I get concerned about military readiness. And and there's good news and bad news there is. The bad news is, you know, military fighters are tight-knit. They're in close quarters. They're on subs and bases. Special operators eat, sleep together. They do everything. And you can't have them go down for the count. That worries me in terms of that being exploited by some adversaries. On the good front is because they're military, they follow orders. So if it's done right, um, you can say everybody's sanitizing hands before they walk in here. You know, everybody's staying home or not coming to the base or whatever. There's a very tightly controlled community. But, from you know, in terms of just defensive posture, that's my worry. Both good points. Um, my worry is the worst case scenario is we'll repeat the mistakes we've already made in the past and we'll essentially just carry on let the poor, the most vulnerable, take the brunt of the pain and forget about it when it's over and then leave ourselves open to it happening again and again, because it will happen again. I don't know, two years, five years, eight years. It keeps happening. And unless we can, which is a whole different topic, really cut it off at the source and ideally disentangle the, the jump from animals to people in places that it originates which is much more of a national security, foreign policy, uh, global health issue. All right. That's all we have time for this week about the virus. I suspect it's not the last time we'll be talking about it on Talking Feds. We end each episode with a uh, question from a listener with the wrinkle that the participants have to answer it in five words or fewer. Yeah. And uh, I should have warned you. Pressure is on. Pressure is on. From Renee Brucker on, in Twitter, for how long will the virus's substantial disruption, I take the, you know, the substantial to be important here, of daily life go on? Only the coronavirus knows. Five words. No, no, no. Perfect. <laughs> well, I'll, here, I normally go fourth, but I'll, but I'll go second because mine was similar. Mine was God only knows. I was going to quote uh, the president uh, since I've already quoted Rush Limbaugh <laughs> until until the April until the April heat arrives. Nice. No, look, I, I listen, it's being I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> that's good. Plan for disruption. That's what I would recommend that plan that aspects of your life may change over the course of the next couple of weeks. All right. And on that great note of certainty. I want to uh, thank very much to Frank, Juliet, and Wendy. 
And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lowe Patton. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks, as always, to the phenomenal Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time. <laughs>